Shivani Samaya, and welcome back to the Financial Executives Podcast. It goes without mention, the energy sector has faced tremendous turmoil in the past two years since the pandemic. The ever-present uncertainty in the Gulf to the recent Russian invasion of Ukraine and the push for renewable energy within the sector, it could be assumed that the industry at large is at the brink of a generational paradigm shift. Joining us today for the first session of the fourth quarter of Forward Thinking is Charlie Gear. Charlie is the Chief Accounting Officer at Halley Burton. And Charlie, before we dig our teeth into this very timely topic, can you please give us an overview of your background? Why Halley Burton and how? Okay. No problem. Thanks, Shivani. Um, as you said, I'm Charlie Gear. I'm the Chief Accounting Officer of Halliburton. Um, I started my career, or I, I graduated from Rice University with a Master's of Accounting back in, well, let's just say it was a long time ago, um, and started my career at Ernst & Young, where I spent eight years as an auditor. And so around 2000, I uh, decided that auditing wasn't for me um, and had a colleague who, had work, who was working at Halliburton at the time um, got me a job and I moved over to Halliburton and I stayed there for about seven years and again decided that the grass would be greener on someplace else and I uh, for about six years I left Halliburton doing other things at other oil and gas companies um, learned that the grass was not greener on the other side and um, had an opportunity to come back to Halliburton in 2013 and then during the uh, failed Baker merger that we were looking at um, was able to become the chief accounting officer effectively in 2014 um, and have been there ever since. Really, there's a saying that I've often heard, which is the grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you water it. <laughs> and it seems like you've exactly. watered your grass very well in the oil and um, gas and energy sector. But given that our audience is not necessarily fluent in this industry, how would you describe Halliburton's business and role in the energy sector today? Okay, so what we, we are, what we call it, we are called an oil and gas service company. Um, what that primarily means is we do not own the hydrocarbons in the ground. Um, those are the preview of the independents, the national oil companies, and the international oil companies like Exxon, Shell, BP. Um, what we do is provide services, products and services to help facilitate both cost efficient, both cost effectively and efficiently to help the, those companies get the oil and gas out of the ground and into the various refiners um, and you move forward. And so some of our biggest product lines would be what we call our drilling services, which is basically helping the, the client drill the oil uh, wells as we go forward. And then one that a lot of people are familiar with is obviously the fracking side. Um, we are the largest fracker in North America, which is basically a service that allows for um, you to put high-powered water and sand into a um, oil well to basically fracture the <clears throat> or to to expand the fractures and allow for more oil flowing. Um, and so it's been around for many years, but that's one that you hear a lot about in the news. And that's one of our biggest services here in North America. But we're an international company. We're in 80 uh, countries. Um, all over the world and have really grown our international business over the last 10 years. Thank you for that very 
comprehensive overview of Halliburton and the role that they play in the current energy sector in the energy market. But I want to backtrack a little to talk just a little bit more about your background and your career, given that you've spent a majority of your time in energy, oil and gas. I'm curious to know how you would then describe the current market being defined by economic uncertainty, energy uncertainty. Do you think there's an analog to previous periods, anything that's similar or perhaps different that you're noticing? Sure. Um, I would say, you know, historical analogs are always something people want to see, but they're, they're, they're tough to do. Um, there's always different ideas of what the market is. Um, there's obviously a large uh, need for energy security right now, as the Russian invasion has shown people. That energy security is obviously on a lot of countries' minds now and what that means to them in the future. Um, the lack of the global spare production that's out there is also, spare capacity is also fairly unique. Um, I think you also have this, in general, most of the times when you had the broader recession that we're uh, potentially facing in the future here, you haven't had the amount of undersupply of uh, oil and gas, structurally undersupply oil and gas, um, so that the supply itself is way below the demand, even if we get into situations in which the oil prices do go down, the recession hits, us, hits the world pretty hard, um, there are still... Um, necessity for oil and gas in the future and we don't want to work too hard in not providing uh, infrastructure as oil and gas uh, projects you sometimes take a while to come out of the ground take some uh, background um, sometimes can take a couple years to do so we really have to think about how we look at this uh, economic and energy uncertainty but it is something that i think you have to you have to kind of look at it as, as it by itself. Um, but the real unique part of this is the um, underinvestment we've seen in the past 10 years related to the oil and gas industry, especially in North America. And so Charlie, while our audience might not be fluent in specifically the energy and oil sector, they are very fluent um, in sitting in the seat that you sit in which is the seat of ACAO. What I'm curious to understand now is with all the uncertainty, how does that translate um, into challenges perhaps for a CAO at an energy company? What challenges has this uncertainty posed to you and your role as CAO? But more so jumping off of that, how do you communicate this financial uncertainty to your investors or other key stakeholders? Okay, and, and you know, in some ways, honestly, it's it's not any different than what any CAO goes through um, every time they try to do their financials. I mean, there's always some sort of uncertainty as you do your business, whether it's the market, whether it's the uh, economic uncertainties, whether it's it's related to broader scope markets things. And so, you know, in some regards, it's not it's not much different. You look at the risks to do the business, you analyze the near term and long terms um, as appropriate to see what you do. And you basically provide the the shareholders an idea of what the future might hold as best you can, in a material sense. And so, for instance, you know we just went through a large uh, uh, work with the Russian invasion and the sanctions that were put on there, and we had information, uh, we had uh, business in Russia at that time, and so we had to go through the thinking of you know first of all how material is it, um, and you look at our financial statements, and at the time it was about two to three percent of revenue and maybe two to three percent of assets. So on a 
quantitative basis, maybe not quite as material as some investors would care for, but on a qualitative basis, it was very interesting the investors of what we were doing, how is it going to work, what's happening, um, how we're going to react to this. And so, you know, we had to take a look at, so what do we show as, what is the risks that are out there in your risk factor section? What do you show um, as far as what's what you see the risks are, how much revenue, how much FBO, uh, operating income do you have from this business? You know, what are the risks related to the assets you might have in country? And make sure that you disclose those in a reasonable manner that kind of gives the people an idea of what those risks might be and what you might see in the future. Um, and I think you kind of do that kind of work for almost any uncertainty you have. Um, each one might be unique in its own vein, but you kind of come at it with a very set way of what are the risks that are out there? What is the current effect on your financial statements? And what could be the effect on your assets and liabilities in the future? And you look at all those things and you decide how to disclose and what you need to record. Um, and I, I think a lot of it is, is similar. Now, sometimes you might have more of that to do than others. Um, you know, During the pandemic, um, Halliburton had to write off several billion dollars worth of assets. Um, the, the volume of assets that we had to look at during that time was pretty unprecedented um, as far as what our places could be and how we could show our uh, um, investors where, where our asset base stood and where our uh, future operating income would be. Charlie, you've just touched upon something that's really interesting I want to pick up on as we move on this conversation. You just talked about how um, the pandemic kind of changed the approach um, to disclosures. Am I getting that correct? For your company? I mean, yeah, I mean, the pandemic was obviously um, a huge impact to uh, the oil and gas industry. Um, basically, at one point, which I still to this day don't understand, oil and gas prices were at negative or oil prices were negative for a few hours. Um, how that happens, I don't know. Am I, do I get to get paid to get the oil? Um, so it's a little unusual, but it caused us to have to look at a lot of different things. Uh, one of the things, obviously, that I talked about was the volume of assets we had to look at. Um, including goodwill on a very detailed basis to see if there were any impairments out there. And as we, as I alluded to, we booked billions of dollars of impairments during that time frame, And that took a lot of work and a lot of help um, and a lot of, uh, like I said, the volume of it made it difficult for the company to go through. Um, secondly, um, you know, there's a structural change in North America today uh, in the North American oil and gas industry. You know, investors are no longer looking for uh, the idea of drill, baby, drill, uh, what are your reserves? Are you making more revenue? They want they want capital discipline. They want the return of some of their capital in the form of dividends and cash. And so cash flow is an important piece of what's going on. And so one of the things we really had to look at with this structural change in North America is how has our cost structure been affected? And what do we need to do to our cost structure to make it more efficient with this new global market in mind, especially in North America? And so we took a hard look at that during the pandemic um, and actually took out about a billion dollars worth of costs that we don't expect to come back when the, when the market, as the market starts to turn as it's doing right now. Um, that took a lot of dedication and work and look at what is the more efficient way to deal with some of these things. And it was a, it was a tough road to handle and move forward. I think lastly that the pandemic really did for us was, and I think a lot of people, a lot of companies are dealing with this issue right now, you hear about a lot in the news, is um, the idea of work from home. You know, what can you do to work from home? And, you know, you know, my story is during this downturn, we, I had to let go, honestly, at the beginning of 2020, about 20% of my corporate workforce here in the, in the Houston office. 
at that same time, I was going through all these changes with the volume of uh, impairments that we had to look at related to our financial statements over a two or three quarter period of time. And everybody was working from home during a pandemic. And literally we filed six Qs and two 10Ks without much of a problem in the same time frame we've always done it. And everybody was working from home. And so for people to say to me, honestly, at least as a, a support function for finance, that you can effectively work from home and do a lot of the work, um, I don't think that's true. Now, the other side of it um, is, you know, Halliburton is a company that has a lot of um, tenured employees. and. During this time, you know, 10, 15, 20, I mean, I have a person who just celebrated their 45th anniversary at Alabama. And so, honestly, that helps a lot, obviously, with the work from home. These people knew their jobs. They'd been in these jobs a long time, and that helps. And so, one of the things you can't also have um, is a complete work from home policy. I don't think you need to work at the office 24-7. And so, Halliburton um, right now has done what we call a hybrid, which basically is 10 days in the office a month. Um, and I think that's working well. It gives people some of the the ideas that they'll happen. I mean, yeah, the flexibility that they need, but also gets them to come into the office to to really talk with their peers, get to know what's going on, see other people. Um, I think that culture is important, that ability to really talk with people face to face. Um, some of these seminars, you know, the, the Teams things are great, um, but they're not perfect. And you can't necessarily see all the little tales when you're talking to people. So it's it's a good thing. And so... You know, one of the, th and we learned a lot of different things as we did this, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting is you would have thought that the time to be in the office, at least what I would have thought is during the close, you know, the end of the month, the beginning of the next month, kind of when you're closing the books for the month or the quarter, you really need to be in the office because that's what had happens. And to be honest with you, it turns out, and I would say it's at least even, but maybe even a little more efficient because of the close, especially for an international company like Halliburton. Um, we're getting entries from all over the world. And so, you know, at five o'clock at the in the evening here, our time, uh, my team might've been sitting around waiting for another two hours to get an entry. And so they're not really effectively working during that two hours because they're really just waiting for that entry. And so if they're home, um, they wait for that person, to, then they can log back on. And, and a lot of that was more efficient time pace for them and for us. Um, and so, you know, honestly, a lot of the close time is spent at home. And so it's been a different time. And I think there's still a lot of things to learn about what is good, what's the best fit for remote work. Um, but I do think the hybrid thing is working well for the finance. Charlie, I will say something from all the conversations that I've had with not just our membership, but outside of our membership with people who work in corporate and I'm based in New York. Um, I will say what's sticking out to me right now is Halle Burton's approach to the work from home model being on a per month basis. That's something I haven't heard. I've heard it be on like a per week basis that you have to come in you know, at least two or three times. But I'm glad to hear that all in all, the pandemic showed you that it was possible to kind of close your books at the end of each month and kind of have that collaboration be enabled by technology. I mean, it's something that we're hearing across the board in every industry. But you had mentioned something that I think is really interesting, and I know that our members care very deeply about this topic. Um, you mentioned how there's a shift in the North American culture with regards to the energy sector. And you kind of brought about this example of how it's not just drill, baby, drill anymore. Um, but I think that there's also a generational shift with um, being more environmentally conscious. And I'm talking about the push and kind of the recent rise or phenomenon, phenomenal rise of 
companies now taking ESG strategies very seriously. But I'm curious from your seat as a provider, as a finance leader for a company that provides products and services for the energy sector, how do you attract investors with your ESG strategy? And has how has it changed your approach to disclosures? So there's a lot of obviously going on with that. And it's it really started to accelerate at the beginning of last year, um, the importance of ESG reporting and, and the information there. I will say Halliburton puts out what we call an annual sustainability report. And we've been doing that for probably six, seven, maybe even 10 years now. Um, so we've always kind of thought that, that that kind of information could be important to certain uh, shareholders, um, especially on the social and governance side. It's always been a, a, one of our priorities. Um, as part of social, you get safety. Um, and safety is basically a, you, you have to have it. It's a, it's a base level. You have no difference in the oil and gas industry. You can't afford, your people have to go home safely every day. Um, and so that is something that we do not skimp on. And we put a lot of effort into making our safety protocols work throughout the 60, you know, the 80 countries that we're in, in a pretty volatile environment sometimes at the oil and gas uh, site. Um, so it's been important to us and we put that information around as we do that. We think that's good business, but it also, I think, attracts investors. Um, also, you know, to some extent, we are one of the more uh, diverse companies in the world. Um, like I said, we're in 80 countries. We have 140 different nationalities. Um, we try to, in general, probably 70 to 80% of our workforce in each one of those countries is a localized workforce. So in Asia, uh, Thailand, it's Taiwanese. In um, Africa, it's Africans. Um, we do that um, to really you know, provide to the local economies. And we think the diversity of the world's different people is good for the company and good for our work. And so we've always had good business there. Now on the environmental side, um, there's been obviously a lot more focus on that part of the ESG equation. Um, and so you know, how we view environmental at Halliburton today is we are there to provide lower hours, but also really provide services and products that lower our customers' carbon emissions um, as we move forward. And so one of the ways that we do that, one of our largest one of our largest scope one, scope two uh, products is our fracturing fleet. Um, they provide about probably close to 70 to 80% of our scope one or scope two emissions in any one year. And what we have started to roll out is what we call our electrical fracturing, fracturing fleet, which will significantly reduce our emissions and our uh, customers' scope three emissions um, as we move forward. Um, it's but it's also good business. Um, there's better maintenance costs on it. Um, some of this stuff will last, some of the, uh, the fracking equipment will be uh, last a little longer on certain things. And there's noise pollution issues. There's also pollution, other types of things. And so overall, while it does make some good sense to the investors and to the energy transition that we are uh, a part of, it also makes good economic sense. Um, we're making good profits on the electric rack fleets as we move forward. And we think that's something there um, but it also delivers efficient fracturing services to our customers that they love. The other thing that we were working towards is something we called Halliburton Labs. And Halliburton Labs is basically what we would call our incubator of new tech, of new company startups. And so what we do is basically a, a clean energy accelerator is how we would call it. But what we do is we invite small startups each three times a year to interview with us and work with us. And we pick four of them each period of time and basically help them 
um, scale their product offerings, either providing them serve, you know, help to look at for investors, help to look at banking, help to use our labs for services, our logistics network, which is huge considering the international scope we have. Um, we believe that this allows us to kind of have a front row seat as to what will be the next successful thing in an energy transition. Is it going to be some carbon capture? Will it be related to some geothermal? Um, and so instead of spending a lot of our shareholders' hard-earned capital on you know, the next big thing, um, we believe this is a pretty capital light. Uh, we don't have to spend a lot of money to see what's out there. And once we start to learn and do this over the next couple of years, we'll be able to really make good decisions on where to invest our capital in the future on where the best place is for us as an executor, a product and services company um, to provide for the energy transition. And so those things have been really important to us. I think they've resonated with our shareholders as we do those kind of things. Um, the last part of this, I will say, is on, on my side, more towards the, the chief accounting officer, is, you know, like I said, we've done an uh, annual sustainability report for, you know, come on 10 years. Um, but recently, the amount of information that you need, but also the accuracy, they, the, the shareholders are going to start, I think, are starting to think about using this, date, this, this information to judge companies, and they want it to be accurate and timely. And so how do you do that? And so one of the things that we have done is we've set up a position under me that, that what we call an ESG controller. And essentially, if you look at the ASR report, there's about 150 metrics in there that are non-financial that have, I would say, reasonable controls over them, but not necessarily the control structure that the financial statements would require. Um, and so the ESG controller's job right now is to work on those 150 creating methodologies and control frameworks, just like we do for the financial, um, to provide for a more consistent and um, accurate reporting of the various numbers that people want, including both economics, I mean, e environmental, social, and the governance side. Um, we actually also got um, some of our social safety and environmental uh, data Limit, got limited assurance from KPMG. So along those lines, we're working towards really making those numbers uh, be better useful to the, in, the investors. And it's still gonna be an interesting time. Like I said, 150 data points is pretty large for anybody to really get through. And so as the, the various standard setting bodies come up with various different information, um, it'll be interesting to see what is the most important and hopefully maybe reduce some of the, the noise that some of these numbers might give if they're immaterial. And then lastly, the SEC themselves and the European Union are coming out with their set of rules um, as to what is required to be put in the financial statements and we're preparing ourselves for those. Pandemic inform your ESG strategy whatsoever? Did you have to revisit your strategy? Did you change? Did it influence how you presented it to investors? No, I don't think, well, I mean, only in the sense that did the pandemic make uh, the broader investment community be more focused on ESG. Um, us ourselves, I don't think it changed much other than at the same time, uh, the, there was a lot more focus on the accuracy of the numbers and the, the message that you're getting across. And so we spent some more time refining how we do that, like I said, with the accuracy of the numbers, but also we're really looking hard at our ASR report and does it provide the information that the investors are looking for. I don't know if it was anything particular to the recession in us, I mean, the pandemic and us, but I do think the pandemic put, shined a light on 
the fact that you do need lots of different forms of energy and energy transition is something that needs that is important to people that we need to keep our eyes focused on. And so therefore the investors wanted more information that was accurate and timely. It's been spoken about very frequently across many different industries, and that is the um, potential economic slowdown that is um, informed by inflation. But what I want to understand is from your seat and where you sit, what do you think will be the greatest impacts of an economic slowdown informed by inflation on the oil and gas industry? And I feel like you've touched on aspects of um, what could potentially be your response earlier, but I'm curious to know what you think. So, I mean, I think the the idea that there might be a recession or some people might argue we are in the middle of uh, the beginnings of a recession, um, in general, on a, like an overall basis, we're really honestly just kick the can down the road as far as the supply chain, the supply demand imbalance that you currently have in oil and gas. Um, I think in the short term, there could be some reduction in demand, which would then obviously impact the oil prices negatively, downward trends. Um, but you know, if you look at the um, oil and gas prices needed to support um, the uh, work that people are doing, you know, you, you would say somewhere in the seven to eighty dollars a barrel um, is still very profitable for a lot of companies throughout the world to continue to invest in oil and gas. Um, if that starts to, you know, bring prices down even lower than that, then yes, there's going to be some scale back in what we see as a future, uh, as a, a near-term future, um, and that would obviously impact the oil and gas industry with some slowdown in North America. It would, it would impact North America the, the quickest. Um, but I think you also need to know the idea that, um, you know, in general, there's still a commodity scarcity that we have, and if we aren't at least doing something to uh, bring some more oil and gas online, even during some of the recessionary parts, it's just going to make it worse when the recession's over and we bring back demand in the future. I mean, China itself um, could bring back two to three billion, two to three million dollars, million barrels a day um, once they get over the, their COVID only, you know, their, their no COVID um, stance. That could bring back a lot of demand just from that alone. And so there is going to be some short term and it obviously causes some short term fluctuations in uh, the gas price itself, the worry of a recession. Uh, makes people uh, think hard and long, and but the overall trajectory of oil and gas, um, what you see in the stories and what you see in the analysis reports, um, it's a long-term need. Um, while there's need for all forms of energy, oil and gas will be a big part of that over the next 20 to 25 years. Um, and so we expect our customers to remain busy during some of this development. There may be a slight short-term turndown, especially in North America, but we expect um, you know, it to be a multi-year upcycle as we move forward. And so I'm glad that you bring up future looking and forward looking and moving forward. But I'm curious to know what are the new risks that you see coming up in the future? I would say, you know, again, I mean, the, the recessionary risks are always there. Um, you know, you look at different geopolitical risks, um, you know, does the Russian war end um, or Russian invasion, sorry, uh, end in the Ukraine and Russia begins to produce more oil and gas barrels? 
You know, just recently, uh, President Biden's looking at Venezuela and maybe opening up some more there. Um, so that could open up some capacity. Uh, if you have an Iran deal, um, nuclear deal, maybe that opens up, reduces some of the sanctions on Iran and opens up some capacity there. So there's a lot of geopolitical concerns that you're always, almost always looking at in the oil and gas industry that can affect the supply balance. Um, so those would all be positives to the supply. Um, that could impact the oil and gas price and see how you're going. Then you have the other side of it where OPEC Plus just came out with that they are reducing their uh, supply over the coming uh, months by 2 million barrels a day, I think it was, um, which obviously impacts the, the oil supply differently. And so there's a lot of factors, a lot of different complicated economic factors that go into all this. Is it more complicated than in the past? Um, I, I don't know that it necessarily is. It's always been a fairly cyclical, complicated market. Um, I think most markets probably are in the long run. But you have to take a look at all those geopolitical factors, all the factors. But at the end of the day, you're left with that we have not, as a world, a globe, um, really put a lot of investment in oil and gas. Um, and you can't turn the spigot back on immediately. I mean, the U.S. itself is the one that can respond the quickest. It's got the quickest short sparrows. They have the infrastructure um, from drill time to actually getting oil out of the ground is probably the quickest. Saudi's probably pretty close as well, but a lot of it takes a long time frame, and we haven't we haven't seen a whole lot of 15, 20, 30 year projects because of the risks and the uncertainties that might happen in the global economy. But what's that what that's done is over the last six or seven years, the amount of supply that's come in, in into the market um, has diminished uh, dramatically, and to be able to get it back takes a while. And with the demand curves you have on, especially in some of the like I said, the short cycle barrels, we can do it quickly. But the decline curve on those uh, short cycle barrels is usually fairly steep. Um, and so they don't necessarily produce for a long periods of time. And so there's going to come a time, I think, where the supply is going to be even more drastically impacted if we don't start thinking about uh, what we do for the future as far as investing in this as an energy transition goes on. Um, I think everybody at Halliburton agrees that there is an energy transition that we need to work towards. I think the question is the scope and the speed at which you do it. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does. Your need to adapt, your need to evolve, your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping large and mid-sized organizations embrace the future with confidence, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, for a changing world. With less investment going into long-term oil and gas projects, what investment trends do you see in the energy infrastructure space? Where is the investment going? I mean, up until recently, the investment wasn't coming in at all. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of investment out there. But right now, the investment is going to what we would call these short-cycle barrel, these, these short-term three- to five-year projects um, that move on, a lot of them not being offshore, um, I, you know, we're not seeing as a company any or very few, you know, 20, 20 30, 25-year, 30-year projects. And so part of that was that the money wasn't coming in, and part of it is the risk associated or the, the perceived risk associated with any long-term projects. And so a lot of them are these short cycle barrels, which for Halliburton can sometimes be good because it's not a lot of the infrastructure costs that we don't usually participate in. 
But for oil and gas in the long term, um, these short cycle barrels also have a steep decline curve a lot of times, and they don't produce for a long period of time. And so really to get that long term thing, we're going to have to think about what we do invest. But currently, the investment just isn't there. It hasn't returned. The investment in the oil and gas space has not returned to levels that probably would be um, suitable for what the global demand will be for oil and gas in the future. realistic is it that Germany, Europe, eliminates purchase of Russian oil and gas over the next five to ten years? Um, I think that's going to be difficult. I mean, it's it's not just the idea that there's oil and gas, whether there's oil and gas available for them to get otherwise. It's the logistics involved in getting them. I mean, pipelines are very efficient means, and there are not necessarily a lot of pipelines other than the Russian pipelines. Um, to them. So I think it's going to be difficult. I mean, I think they'll do the things they, they can do. And I, you see that the U.S. and others are helping. But I think it'll be difficult. You know, building LNG plants and those kind of things or regasification plants are not something that can be done in the short term. Um, over the next five to 10 years, yes, I think that they can focus on that um, and do some things. But it'll also depend on, you know, what happens this winter. Um, I know there's a lot of uh, articles about you know, everybody trying to turn off the lights and keep the, the heater off as much as possible. It's going to be a tough time that I think they're going to have to spend some time really thinking about. But it's going to be tough to get over Russian oil and gas in the short term um, because it's just it logistically it takes a long time to create this infrastructure. How do you deal with a market that is so prone to boom and bust cycles? But how do you lead your team through these boom and bust cycles? Uh, it's, it can be very difficult. Um, you know, it's tough because you go through the bust and you you try to, you know, you have to keep, you have a tendency to have to let go. Like I said, in this last one, the, about 20% of the workforce um, and keeping them motivated. Um, one of the bigger problems we've had over the last seven or eight years is there hasn't really been much of a boom lately. Um, we're hoping that maybe we see this multi-year upcycle going forward and that'll help things going. But just you got to do things to help motivate them, make them understand that, you know, that there are there are good things, and that during the boom times we are, you know, paying that back to our employees that have stayed with us um, as we move forward. But it's it's a difficult one. It's hard it's hard to get through electric frac fleets, um, and whether or not they're really sustainable. Um, there is some there is some truth to that. Um, but the fleets that we currently have are all powered by diesel fuel, whereas a lot of the electric frac fleets are starting to be powered by natural gas, um, and so there is some savings. Um, and then later, as you start getting more of, if you if we do sustainably get more and more of the electric grid on natural gas or uh, power, but at, yes, at the end of the day, it is not, our electric frac fleets are not zero emissions because the electricity that's provided in most of the world today, well, really it's just North America where our frac fleets are, is provided by things, but it is a little bit more effective because it isn't diesel fuel, it's natural gas. I think the other one that I see is what will the increase of push, increased push of electric vehicles affect Halliburton? Um, you know, obviously it, it really would have, it would have boils down to is what is the global demand? We're an international company and what is the global demand um, for oil and gas and electric vehicles um, in the long term would expect to decrease it a lot. But as we talked about before, the electric grids right now are still powered with a lot of uh, natural gas, um, which is a, uh, something that Halliburton is a part of sometimes coal, which we are not a part of. But so until the electric grids are 100% renewables of some sort, the demand, the electric vehicles aren't necessarily going to reduce demand 
a huge amount. Um, and there's still a lot of other things over uh, overseas trucking, I mean, over land trucking and other things that do a lot of stuff on that. Do you have trouble recruiting young folks into this industry? Um, yes, I, I think we do. We do to some extent. Yes. Um, I mean, you know, when you're recruiting young folks in, there's always a little bit uh, as being in the industry versus the big four. Um, we lose a lot of people to the big four. And so are they going because they want to go to the big four accounting companies or are they not coming because of the industry oil and gas? But when you talk to people and we have interns, um, there is a, 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 a hardness that we have to get over that we are somehow doing something, you know, we're maybe an evil company um, to some extent. And so we have to do what we to show them um, that, you know, we are still doing a lot of things that we provide a service for the world to provide the oil and gas that we need to have um, reasonable cost energy for the world. Um, but yes, it does. It has been impact. It does impact our ability to recruit uh, the young people in the world. Charlie, there are so many more questions that have come in for you, and I'm going to do my best to pick two that I think um, are the most interesting to ask you just now, because um, I want to be mindful of everyone's time. But there's a question here that I think is very interesting, which you might have spoken about or you can take. Um, what are current FASB and or SEC projects that are currently taking Halliburton the most time to comply? Um, I mean, obviously, I think the big one right now is the new climate change rule, which actually isn't in effect. But, you know, you can't with the accelerated timelines and some of them, um, you can't necessarily wait. And so we're working on that. And that's going to take a lot. Um, I mean, some aspects of it, like reporting your scope one and scope two and having a certain amount of assurance on it. For us, we've already done most of that work. Um, like I said, we're working on making sure that the controls are even better. But that amount isn't the hard part. The biggest part of the SEC rules, which is one that confounds me a lot, is in the financial statements themselves, uh, the audited financial statements, putting the effect at a fairly low materiality level um, of weather-related climate, weather-related events, and what that definition is and how you figure that out, how you track that kind of information is going to be very difficult for us to comply with in the future. And it's going to be interesting how we do so uh, now. You know, there's been a lot of comment letters out there, and we'll see how the final rule goes. But that part is very difficult, and it's, it's, it's going to be very time-consuming for us to comply with. And there's a question here that asks, do you see regulations easing for drilling and fracking soon with continued price pressure? You know, that's a – honestly, if I knew that answer, I probably have already invested – and be a uh, billionaire somewhere on the on the shores of some island. Um, it's tough. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think there needs to be. I, I do think there needs to be. Um, if we're going to, if the U.S. is going to be able to provide some of that, we need to to streamline some of that effect. Um, whether that'll happen or not, I think it'll depend on how much it hits people's pocketbooks. Right now, you know, with the Russian invasion and energy security being a big deal, and the oil gas. I mean, the price at the pump. I think there's a lot of. In, in incentive to understand what's going on and a lot of it is supply uh, curve and how do we increase the supply as we move forward and hopefully do the things that will allow us to do that. In your mind, what are the biggest threats and challenges to your industry today? Is the state's goal to be energy independent one of those threats and challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that 
I think it's the goal. It's the idea that maybe the speed at which um, some of the um, Western uh, countries think we can do the change, the energy transition, is a risk that we have to consistently think about as we move forward. I mean, in some ways, logistically and just factually, I'm not sure that we can do it at the speed without causing a lot of economic ruin. And so, but that that is something that we have to continually deal with, the, the speed at which they uh, would like to change the energy transition as opposed to maybe a more um, subdued version that it goes over the period of time. But it is something that we are constantly looking at at Halliburton. And, you know, again, we believe that there needs to be a form of energy transition. If we look at biothermal, we look at carbon capture, um, we do biothermal, geothermal. Um, and so those are the things that we're looking at in the future as we move forward.